All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Daily Power Parsha. Today is Friday, February 25th. Because it's Friday, we are going to finish. We're going to conclude the Torah portion. This week's Torah portion is Vayakel. And we're going to study a very unique Maftir and the Haftarah. So we got a lot, we got a lot to cover. Um, just so you know, this week is known as, as Parshas Shkolem, or Shabbos Shkolem, Parshas Shkolem. It's, uh, it's the Shabbos in which we read about the, um, the mitzvah of giving the half a shekel. We always read it the Shabbat before the month of Adar. This year we have two Adars, Adar 1 and Adar 2. It's a leap year, which means we have an extra Adar. We read this special reading in addition to the Torah portion. We read it always the Shabbat before Adar, or in a case where there's two, it's always before the second Adar, the one that's closer to Nisan and Passover. Anyway, that's just a long way of saying that we have um, some very interesting things to cover today. So let's jump, jump right in. I'm going to share my screen with you, and let's get rolling. Again, Torah portion is Vayakel. We're up to reading 6 for Friday. Let's take it away. Exodus chapter 37, verse 17. And he, Betzalel, made the menorah of pure gold. Of hammered work, he made the menorah. Its base and its stems and its goblets, its knobs and its flowers were all one piece with it. As we explained a few weeks ago in the commandment of how to build a menorah, it was meant to be hammered out of one piece of solid gold, which made it remarkably difficult. And yet, this is what happened. This is the way it was created. Verse 18. By the way, there is a tradition that it was very difficult to make. And so God said, essentially, throw the gold into, the, into a fire and out came and out came uh, the menorah. So there is a tradition that there was a miraculous element to it, but at least the way it's written here is that he made it, Ayyub and his crew, they actually made it hammered out of one solid chunk of gold. Next, verse 18, and six branches coming out of its sides, three menorah branches from its one side, three menorah branches from its second side, three decorated goblets on one branch, a knob and a flower, and three decorated goblets on one branch, a knob and a flower. So for the six branches that come out of the menorahs, so each, there was a center stem, of course, then from the stem came out three branches on either side, which according to Rashi and Rambam were diagonal, not the rounded, which we discussed a few weeks ago. And then these branches were decorated with goblets, knobs, and flowers on each of the branches. Next, and on the stem of the menorah, that's that center Right, centerpiece, center stem, were four decorated goblets, its knobs, and its flowers. And a knob under the two branches from it, that means when the branches meet in the middle, there was like a, a knob, like a rounded, a rounded shape over there. And a knob under the two branches from it, and a knob under the two branches from it. So for the six branches that come out of it. And basically, there are three instances of where two branches meet because there are Six branches in total. So we have two meeting here, then two meeting there, then two meeting there, and that produces one, two, three, four, five, six branches. Okay, their knobs and their branches were all one piece with it. Once again, ham the, nothing was welded or attached on um, afterwards. No aftermarket pieces, all one piece. All of it was one hammered mass of pure gold, and this is the way it was done. And he made, Betzalel made its lamps seven, 
Six branches, one stem, seven. And its tongs and its scoops. All of that, the lamps, the tongs, the scoops were made out of pure gold. He made it of a talent of pure gold. A talent, we said, was that 64 pounds? I think a talent was like 64 pounds or something like that. A large amount of gold and all its implements. So he made it out of this amount of gold and he made, okay, so that's it with the menorah. Next, next item. Betzal made the incense altar. That's the inner altar that was made out of gold. He made it, or at least covered in gold. He made it out of acacia wood, one cubit long and one cubit wide, square. So it was one by one. And two cubits high. Its horns were one piece with it. The horns were the protrusions at each of the four corners. They were made of the same piece of wood. And he overlaid it, as I mentioned a moment ago, with pure gold on its top, its walls all around, and its horns all were covered with this gold plating. And he made for it a golden crown designed um, all around. And he made two golden rings for it underneath its crown on its two corners, on its two sides, as holder for the poles, for poles with which to carry it. Interestingly, I, I don't know that I emphasized this a few weeks ago when we read about the golden altar. What's interesting is that most items had four rings. So if you're dealing with a, like a square rectangle shape, you would have ring like one, two, three, four, and a pole going through here and a pole going through here. They would carry it like that. This altar was so small, it was like one by one cubit. It was one by one amma, about 18 inches by 18, a foot and a half by a foot and a half. It was a relatively small footprint that they didn't do four rings. They only did two at the diagonal corners. So again, you have a square, right? Or three, like, you know, whatever, a square. Do I have a square in front of me? I do have a square in front of me. Look at that. Here's a square, right? So you would have one ring here and one ring there, and they would put a pole here and a pole there, and they would carry it like this. So kind of like in a diamond configuration. Okay, that is that, right? And that's, again, I just wanna explain, this is what the Torah says. Two rings, not four, two rings on its two corners. They didn't put the rings in the sides, one, two, and carry it like this. They put the rings on the corners, like this, right? One, two, and they carried it like this. That's for the golden, the inner golden altar. He made the poles to carry this inner golden incense altar out of acacia wood and overlaid them, of course, with gold because it was a gold item. And he made all the items, by the way, in the building of the Mishkan, not outside in the courtyard of the Mishkan. In the building of the Mishkan, all contained, either they were solid gold or they were covered by gold. Either way, there was gold all around. This is for the four items. I just mentioned the four items. The ark, gold plated inside and out with wood in the center. Um, solid gold cover and the gold cherubim. That's the, that's the ark. Then you had the menorah. We just read as a solid piece of gold. Um, the showbread table, wood and gold. And the inner incense altar, wood and gold. All the items had gold. Um, and he made, let's continue, verse 29. He made, but Saul made the holy anointing oil and the pure incense after the ark of a perfumer. So let's explain. The holy anointing oil, that was a special oil mixed with fragrant spices. That was a fragrant items, spices, that was used to inaugurate, anoint, initiate all of the vessels of the Mishkan. After everything was made, it was anointed with this oil, as were the priests, Aaron and his sons, the high priest and the priests, who served, who were to serve 
in this uh, in this temple in this Mishkan. So they he made the oil, made the oil for the anointing. Got to have oil for the anointing, oil. So he made it, and he also combined the pure or formulated the pure incense after the era of a perfumer. In other words, it was done in the specific way that it was intended to be done. By the way, I had Rashi on, right? Rashi's on. This is high Rashi, but Rashi's right now on, and you notice there's no Rashi. And that's why I'm also not doing much commentary because, to be honest, we did all this. I mean, we know all this in the vision. Now it's the implementation, but it's pretty much the same. I'm going to hit show Rashi again. So anytime there's a Rashi, you know, we'll, we'll encounter it. Okay, let's continue. This is going to be reading seven, the final reading of the parasha. But don't worry, we have a few other ideas, the, a few other elements. The mafter, special mafter, as I mentioned, and the haftorah, a special, a special haftorah. So let's go reading seven. And he, Betzalel, and his crew made the altar for the burnt offerings. That's the outer altar. He made it out of acacia wood, five cubits long, five cubits wide, a square five by five, not one by one, five by five. The altar was square and it was three cubits high. Well, we had a dispute before. Three cubits high or maybe ten cubits high because there was a seven cubit base, base, whatever, three cubits high. And he made its horns on its four corners. That was the protrusions on each of the four corners of this, of this altar. Its horns were all one piece from it. It was from the wood itself. And he overlaid it with copper, not gold. This is not inside the building. This is outside the building. Copper. And he made all the implements of the altar, the pots and the shovels and the sprinkling basins and the flesh hooks and the fire pans and everything was made. He made all its implements of copper. You know, by the way, you, you, not, you can even today you can buy um, pots and pans and shovels and you know all that stuff made out of copper. Sometimes hammered copper. It's a nice, nice look for kitchenware, if I may say so myself. Anyway, that's what it was. That's what it was. He had an altar made out of wood covered with copper, and all of the implements, all of the tools for that altar were made out of copper. And he made for the altar a copper grating of netting wood work. A grating around the design around, beneath its ledge from below until its middle. And he cast four rings on the four ends of the copper grating, holders for the poles, two on each side to put the to put the poles through. And he made the poles once again of acacia wood and he overlaid them with copper. It was wood with coating with a copper coating. And he inserted the poles into the rings on all the sides of the altar. He inserted the poles into the rings on the sides of the altar with which to carry it. So that's a bit of a convoluted sentence. Basically, put the rings, put the poles in the rings, the rings that were on the side of the altar. And why did he put the poles in? To carry it. He made it hollow out of boards. What does that mean? The ark, sorry, not the ark, the altar was hollow. It wasn't a solid, heavy mass, you know, piece of wood. Imagine... This five by five by three or by ten cubit hunk of wood, just like a tree, like a massive tree stump, whatever, like just a big wood piece. It's not what happened. It was made out of boards that were hollow. So it was acacia wood boards, hollow in the middle. Rashi explains the following. The boards of acacia wood were placed on all sides that created the shape of this altar, and the hollow part was in the middle. Okay, next, 
Oh, this is going to be good. This is a very interesting story. All right, next. Let's do the verse first and then Rashi. And he made the washstand. Next item. He made the washstand. That's the kiar. That's where they wash their hands. He made the washstand of copper. It was also outside. Near the altar. And its base of copper. He made the washstand of copper. And the base of copper, he made it out of what? From the mirrors of the women who had set up the lesions, who congregated at the entrance of the tent of meeting. This requires a deep dive. The Torah is telling us that this washstand and its base, they were made of a special copper. Copper that was donated or taken from the mirrors of the women who had set up the legions. What does that even mean? From the mirrors of the women who set up legions? Rashi says, Israelite women own mirrors. And they would look into, sorry, which they would look into when they adorn themselves. Makes sense, right? You look in the mirror, you make sure your hair and your jewelry, everything looks right. Okay, that's what they did. Even these mirrors, says Rashi, which were for, one might think, was for vanity and for their own, not necessarily in a negative way, but like for their own beautification, right? They did not hold back from bringing as a contribution toward the Mishkan. In other words, they gave away their own mirrors. I, we, we talk about this all the time. The women were always on board with the program. They were always with God and with Moses and with what needed to be done. So Moses says, we need materials. And what did they bring? Their mirrors. You would think, not the mirrors. They brought the mirrors. However, listen to this. Listen to this drama. But Moses rejected them because they were made for temptation. So they brought the mirrors, which itself is like remarkable. They they brought their own mirrors. They don't need the mirrors. They brought the mirrors. They were willing to give up their own mirrors to give to the Mishkan. But Moses sees it and he says, you know what? No thanks. It's not appropriate. He literally pulled out a not appropriate card and gave it to them. He says, it's not appropriate. I mean, I don't mean that literally, literally, but like figuratively, literally, he pulled out the inappropriate card. He said, I, mirrors, uh, as I mentioned before, it's like vanity. It's temptation. It's beauty. It's, I don't know. It's like a little bit, uh, it's a little bit of a sensual thing. It's not, it's not necessarily appropriate for a mishkan, for a temple. And what did God say? Rasha continues. The Holy One, blessed be he, said to him, accept them. God overrides Moses. Moses says, no, thank you. And God says, take them. Oh, you better take them. For these, listen to this, listen to this line. For these are more precious to me than anything. Of all the donations, the mirrors are the best, the most important, the most precious. Not most important, the most precious. Chavivin Alai, min hakol, chavivin alai. They are the most precious. Why? Because through them, the women set up many legions. Right? That was the verse. The mirrors of the women who had set up the legions. Because these mirrors were what produced the legions. I.e., through the children they gave birth to in Egypt. Let me just quickly explain that before Rashi continues. What, what What is happening here is, the women are bringing the mirrors. Moses is saying, no, thank you. God is saying, take it. In fact, it's the most precious. Why? Because it's because of the mirrors that the generation, that, the, that, that Jews, that there are Jewish people today. It's because of the mirrors. That's where the legions, the, it's not the tribes, but like, not, it's not, also sounds like an army thing, but it's not only army. It's the troops. But, you know, like when you say gather the troops, you don't necessarily mean only militarily, right? Huh? 
Say it again. Multitudes. Multitudes, yeah, yeah, multitudes. But in this context, it means like, you know, the troops, like gathering the troops. You say that not necessarily in a military context. You say that also in, you know, when you, when you gather a group of people. So that's what God is, is saying to Moses is that these mirrors were instrumental in setting up the legions, in producing more, more children and thus sustaining Judaism and Jewish people, the, the, the children of Israel. So, and then Rashi explains what happened. When their husbands were weary from backbreaking labor, they, the women, would go and bring them food and drink and give them to eat. Okay? So the men were exhausted of slavery in Egypt. They were exhausted. The women, the wives, their wives would bring them food and drink and give them food. Then the women, they, the women, would take the mirrors and each one would see herself with her husband in the mirror. So she would hold the mirror. Right? She would have the mirror. I guess it was a compact mirror, not like a wall-hanging mirror. I don't know what they looked like back then. It was somewhat of a compact thing. She would take it and hold it out so that this is like the origins of a selfie. She would hold it out. I mean, think about it. She would hold it out in front of her, and she would be able to, and right? It's so that he was also in view of the mirror. Yeah, literally like a selfie. And they, she would say, look at us, right? And she would seduce him with words saying, oh, look at this. I am more beautiful than you. Like playful, like playfully, you know, uh, words of, uh, of seduction. I'm more beautiful than you. And with this, and in this way, they aroused their husband's desire and would copulate with them. As they were intimate together, conceiving and giving birth there. As it says, under the apple tree, I arouse you. Which in the context of song and song, of, in the context in Song of Songs and Shir Shirim, you know, whatever that means there. But in this context, it's, a, it's an illusion. It's a hint to the way that it happened, the way that things transpired in Egypt. The women would meet their men, I guess, uh, their husbands in the fields, out, you know, out there somewhere, I guess, in a somewhat, I would imagine, a private place somewhere. But like and they would bring them food, and they would do this mirror thing, and they, yeah, that's, that's, that's how it happened. This is the meaning of what, it, of what is b'mares hatsoivais. That's the meaning of the biblical phrase, the mirrors of those who set up legions. They were the mirrors. They weren't just mirrors. They were mirrors that literally built the Jewish people. Without the mirrors, who knows? Maybe there wouldn't have been generations, uh, you know, subsequent generations of Jews. All right, now... Okay, the rest of the Rashi gets into why specifically was the washstand made of these mirrors. Okay, so I'll, I'll explain that in a second. I'll, I'll, I'll explain it outside because it's a little bit uh, technical inside. But I actually want to stop sharing and just kind of like speak like this. So here's the point. The women bring their mirrors. Moses says, not appropriate. God says, take it. It's the most beautiful gift. Why? Because this is what created a people. These mirrors and the women's dedication and their insistence on, you know, bringing life into this world, they, the women and their mirrors were instrumental in keeping this people alive. This, these, these mirrors are holy and they're precious, which in and of itself is one of the most powerful lessons that we can possibly hear. And it actually integrates perfectly with our meditation from Sinai class this week, lesson five. Uh, 
which is about finding the divine in the mundane. That was the context of this week's class, the JLI class. It's about how do we find God in the mundane? Part of it is mindfulness and meditation, and but part of it is how we utilize something. And the question is, so what do we use beauty for? Right? What do we use it for? What do we use mirrors for? But mirrors are used, okay, for adornment and for beautification, sure, which could be van- you know, vanity and, and negativity and superficiality, or it could be a positivity. And here the Torah is telling us without, again, I, I don't want to get too entrenched in this, but the bottom line here is the Torah is giving us a perspective on beauty and on intimacy as well. That it's, it should not be deemed, oh, it's like, oh, that's not, it's not appropriate for a temple. It's like, oh, that's not, a, that's not an appropriate thing. That's not a holy thing. Are you kidding me? God says to Moses, not holy. Are you kidding me? Why do you think anyone's around? Why do you think this is a people that still exists? If not for beauty and intimacy. This doesn't exist. The people don't exist without that. And thus it reveals this idea, this concept, this concept and this, this story reveals an incredible truth. That everything, even the most physical experiences, can be experienced also in a spiritual way. For a spiritual purpose. For a higher purpose. And it doesn't mean to... I said this in the, in, in the, in the, in the JLI classes this week. You know, in certain traditions, I, I was trying to not to get super specific, but in certain traditions, certain religions, the highest mark of spirituality, of the highest mark of divinity is when a person abstains from physical pleasures, shall we say. And in Judaism, it's about converting, I don't know, converting, it's about, it's about experiencing even the physical even that which Moses says, mm, I don't know, not appropriate. Even that, to experience it in a holy way. And God says, these are holy mirrors. Do not turn them away. You take these mirrors. And w- what were they used for? They were used for the kiar, the wash basin. It was in the wash basin that the waters for the suspected, the wife who was suspected of infidelity, that's where those waters were drawn from. And that was, you know, hopefully nothing actually happened. Um, she, it, it, there was a false alarm. And thus there would be a blessing, a tremendous blessing to her and to the husband and to the family. And this was, again, the, uh, the, 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 this, thus is a, there's a, an appropriate connection between the mirrors, which reflect this idea of beauty and intimacy, and the, and, and the, and the wash basin, from which marriages were sustained after a, you know questions in a marriage, questions in a relationship. This is what solidified and anchored the relationship. The waters of the kiyar. Okay, so that is that piece, which is really I think really powerful, and it gives an overall, a really important overall perspective within Judaism about what is the definition of holiness. It's not what we would think necessarily. It's not what Moses intuitively thinks. Okay, let's continue. So we finish with the washstand donated from the mirrors, right? And then we get to the actual uh, building, uh, the actual courtyard, sorry. And he made the courtyard. Betzal made the courtyard. The courtyard, of course, was, I mean, you don't have to make the ground, but it means the perimeter, of course, of the courtyard. On the southern side, there were hangings for the courtyard of fine twisted linen, twisted fine linen, 100 cubits. And their pillars. Remember, southern side would be the long side. In a rectangle, bird's eye view, southern side would be the long, the length of the, of the courtyard was 100 cubits of twisted fine linen. 
if you recall, there were, oh, the next verse. And there are pillars. Okay, let me just say this and then we'll read it. There were pillars put up every so often. Think of a picket fence or think of a, maybe a construction zone. You know where you have like that orange mesh stuff? And you have posts. Every once in a while you have a post, a post, and then you have the material that runs alongside of it attached to the post. That's what you have here. You have the, the linen serves as the... Um, the barrier, if you will, for the courtyard. And, um, and it's held up by pillars, 20 pillars. And their sockets, 20 of copper, the hooks of the pillars and their, and their bands of silver. That's all, he made all this stuff. And for the northern end, also 100 cubits, their pillars, 20, and their sockets, 20 of copper. By the way, 20 pillars for a 100 cubits means that each pillar stood five cubits apart, which is seven and a half feet, which is a bit, a bit far from each other, right? A pillar, a post, essentially a post, seven and a half feet, another post, seven and a half feet, another post, and that gives you 100 cubits. So again, the northern end, same as the southern, 100 cubits, their pillars 20, their sockets 20 of copper. Um, uh, the hooks of the pillars and their bands of silver, okay, same deal. And for the western side, that's the short edge now, short edge, right? Or this side, whichever one is west for you. Um, hangings 50 cubits, so the linen barrier, whatever it is, was 50 cubits wide. Their pillars 10, again, every five cubits, seven and a half feet was a pillar, a post, and their sockets 10, the hooks of the pillars and their bands of silver. In this case, the hooks also seems to be silver. Here, the hooks, no, 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 I'm sorry, my apologies. Hooks and pillars were all silver consistently. And on the eastern end, same deal for the eastern end, also 50 cubits. The hangings uh, on the shoulder, wait, 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 hold on, no, okay, fine. So that's it, that's it for the perimeter. So how large was the perimeter? If you would approach the Mishkan from the outside, not the inner building, but like the outside of the whole setup, it would be 100 by 50 or 50 by 100. That would be the, the, the footprint of the entire complex of the Mishkan, the Mishkan complex, not the building only, but the courtyard and the surrounding wall, 100 by 50, which is 150 feet by 75 feet approximately. So fairly large structure-ish. The hangings on the shoulder were 15 cubits. This refers to like the side flanks of the, near the entrance. 15 cubits, their pillars three and their sockets three, that's what held up this uh, frame for the entrance. And on the second shoulder on either side of the gate of the courtyard, there were hangings of 15 cubits, their pillars three and their sockets three. So again, these were, these shoulders, if you will, were um, like curtains that stood by the entrance, right, to kind of flank the entrance with two, two sides. All right, next, all the hangings of the courtyard all around were of twisted fine linen, as we said before, and the sockets for the pillars were copper, which we said before, the hooks of the pillars and the bands were silver, which we said before, and the overlay of their tops were silver, and they were banded with silver, all the pillars of the courtyard. Okay, so imagine wood posts with silver, some copper sockets, a nice, nice look. I would say, not that anyone needs my approval. Verse 18, and the screen of the gate of the courtyard was the work of an embroiderer. Oh, the screen, right? Remember we had the screen? Those were the shoulders, yeah? These verses. That was the screen by the entrance. Flanking the entrance on each side, there was a screen. 
What did that look like? That wasn't white. That wasn't fine white linen or fine twisted linen. Uh, fine linen. That was something else. The screen of the gate of the courtyard was the work of an embroiderer made of colors: blue, purple, and crimson wool, and twisted fine linen. So the the perimeter of the courtyard was the material was fine linen. Twisted fine linen. By the entrance, there was a bit of a design. Okay. Uh, 20 cubits long, and its height in the width was 5 cubits, correspond to the hangings of the courtyard. And their pillars, what made them stand, were 4, and their sockets 4 of copper, their hooks silver, and the overlay of their tops and their bands were silver, like the other posts. And all the pegs of the Mishkan and of the courtyard all around were copper. By the way, what are the pegs? Don't forget the pegs. We talked about this a few days ago. The Mishkan that had walls of wood, and the courtyard, which had pegs of wood, were all tied down with ropes and pegs. Ropes and pegs, like a tent, ropes and pegs. We talked about that a few days ago, and also maybe a few weeks ago. And all of those pegs were copper. That's the end of the parasha. That's the end of the Torah portion. So what's the moral of the story? I mean, like we could get back into the details and copper and silver and pegs and this and hooks and curtains. We've done that. To me, the takeaway is the one Rashi that we had. And what was that Rashi? The ra- Actually, hold on, there might be more Rashi. I may have toggled Rashi off. Give me a second here. Let's just see, actually. Um, nope, not even. I mean, there's one small Rashi, but it's just the clarification that we have in the English anyway. Anyway, so we had one Rashi that was like, you know, a bombshell. This idea of the mirrors. Beauty, vanity, sensuality, intimacy being used for a higher purpose. Moses didn't feel right to Moses. And God says, don't judge a mirror by its cover. Don't assume that the mirror is all about, you know, a lowly experience. It's all about a very, very elevated experience. And herein lies... I'm just going to repeat myself, but I think, I think it's very important. Herein lies the Jewish definition of holiness. Holiness is not abstention from physicality, from materialism, from mundane activities. It's not what it is. It's infusing the mundane with a higher purpose. That is it. That is the definition of holiness. Holiness, I'll say it again. Holiness is not the abstention, the separation, distancing oneself from physical activities. That's not what holiness is. Holiness is engaging in the physical experiences with a higher connection, with a higher intention for the purpose of something a little bit greater and grander than the immediate. And that's what we said in the class this week, in the JLI class. Eating can be holy. It's not automatically holy. It can be. Sleeping can be holy. Working can be holy. And today, intimacy can be holy. But it's all about how we approach it. It's all about the mindfulness. It's all about the intention. Okay. Again, some food for that. Now, let's jump back in to do the maftir. All right. Here we go. Maftir. Now, usually, what's going on here? Checking the browser. Okay. Usually, the maftir is the last few verses of the Torah portion. But this week, this year, it's not. It's not. Vayakel is the Torah portion, but the Maftir is not from Vayakel. It's from Kisisa, which was last week's Torah portion. 
turn back time. TBT Shabbat. What's going on here? The Maftir, which is the you know additional reading of like three verses, three or four or five verses, is from last week's Torah portion. Yes. Why? I mentioned it before. I'll mention it again. Because this week is Shabbat Shkalim. It's the Shabbat in which we read the story about the Machatzis HaShekel, the half shekel donation. Why? Because historically, they would collect on an annual basis a half shekel from all households in Israel. On, um, they would, they would um, put out the call for the half shekel donation. They would put out the appeal letter for the half shekel on, at the beginning of the month of Adar. This month. Now we have this year two others. We do the second one, which is closer to Passover. They would put out the call, Rosh Chodesh Adar, the first day of Adar, for the, for the half shekel donation. They would collect it for about 30 days and have it in time for the month of Nisan and the holiday of Passover. That's the way it, it, it existed. That's the way it worked in temple times for thousands of years or for however long there was a Mishkan and then in Beis Amidish, a holy temple. That's how they did it. That's how they rolled. So today, even to this day, we, we read the section about the, the half-shekel donation. We read it um, this Shabbat in proximity to the Shabbat before the month of Adar or the second month of Adar. One other clarification. The section of the Torah that we're going to read, again, was literally the beginning of last week's Torah portion. So it should be imminently um, um, familiar to all of us. But one thing to note, one thing to note Give me a second as I note this for myself. One thing to note is that the original half-shekel donation was for the census. But it became adopted as an annual thing, and the half-shekel donation was not used to melt down um, the coins for the adunum for the sockets like it was done back then, but the half-shekel was used to purchase communal offerings, communal sacrifices, anything that was brought in the temple on behalf of the community was purchased by virtue of these funds that were donated by the community for the community. I hope all that makes sense. Okay, let's jump in to the maftir. It will sound very familiar. Exodus chapter 30, verse 11. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, by the way, if you're wondering how it's read on Shabbat, yes, what you're picturing in your mind is correct. We finish Vayakal, and then we take the scrolls, Right? We take the handles and the scroll of the Torah and we roll it back a little bit and then we start again, not start, and then we read a little section from last week's portion. When you take the sum of the children of Israel according to their numbers, when you count the people, essentially, let each one give to the Lord an atonement for his soul when they are counted, and then there will be no plague among them when they are counted. How much should they give? This they shall give. Everyone who goes through the counting should give a half a shekel according to the holy shekel. Twenty geras equal one shekel. Half such a shekel shall be an offering for the Lord. Everyone who goes through this counting from the age of 20 and upward shall give an offering to the Lord. The rich shall give no more and the poor shall give no less than half a shekel with which to give the offering to the Lord to atone for your souls. You shall take the silver of the atonements from the children of Israel and use it for the work of the tent of meeting. It shall be a remembrance for the children of Israel before the Lord to atone for your souls. That's the original, the first time the half a shekel was mandated was in the times of Moses with the Jewish people, shortly after the Exodus, after the sin of the golden calf, in the context of building the Mishkan, they raised a half a shekel from all the households and it was used to build the Mishkan. But as I mentioned before, I'm going to say it one more time. Every year subsequently, they raised a half a shekel again. Not a lot of money. Everyone gave a half a shekel, and it went toward communal purchases. 
stuff that was bought on behalf of the community itself. So it came from the community, for the community, everyone pitched in, for offerings that were brought every single day. You know, the Tamid, the consistent offering brought every single day, no exceptions, a, a lamb in the morning, a lamb in the afternoon. Who, who bought those lambs? Where'd that come from? Lambs, you know, you got, you got to purchase animals from a farmer, whatever it is. You got to pay someone somewhere for that. Came from the communal funds. All the holiday offerings on behalf of the community. Holiday offerings. What about the atonement offerings on Yom Kippur? You want that atonement offering? I think you do. Yeah? I don't mean you, you. I mean you as in all y'all. Everyone wants it. Who pays for it? There's no magic, you know, money from the sky. Half shekel went to, to purchase all these things. All right. That's the maftir. It was last week's Torah portion. We did a deep dive then. Let's, uh, let's move on to the half Torah. Trifecta. We concluded Vayakel. We read Shkolim, the, the, the piece about the Maksha Shekel. And now we're doing the half Torah. Special half Torah for this week. From the Book of Kings. Let's do it. And Yehoyada. I don't know how to do that in English. So many vowels in there. If that was a wordle clue, that would be very difficult, and it's more than five characters anyway, but nonetheless. And Yehoyada enacted the covenant between the Lord and between the king and between the people. To be the people of the Lord and between the king and between the people. Three, three parties. God, the king, and the people. Yehoyada creates this covenant between all parties. And all the people of the land came to the temple of the Baal. Remember the Baal? That was the idol. That was the, the idol that was in vogue for a long time. For those that wished to um, fraternize with idolatry, they would be worshiping the Baal on the side. So the people, again, so Yahyada is kind of bringing back monotheism. He's like bringing it back to Judaism. He's like, woo, let's get back on the train here. Let's get back on track. So he enacted, he reenacted the covenant between God and him and the people. And, right? So what they do, they came to the temple of the Baal and tore it down. It's a good thing. And its, all, its altars and its images, they smashed. Good. And Matan, the priest of the Baal, okay, gets a little violent here, they slew before the altars. And the priest set up appointees over the house of the Lord. It sounds like they put the right people in charge of the holy temple. And he took the officers of the hundreds and the mighty warriors and the couriers and all the people of the land, and they brought the king down from the house of the Lord, and they came by way of the gate of the couriers to the king's palace, and he sat on the throne of the kings. All of that meaning to say that his sovereignty was propped up and, and heralded as being a good thing, ending, for, at least for the moment, idolatry. And all the people of the land rejoiced, and the city quieted down. And Ataliyahu, they had dispatched by the sword in the royal palace. Okay, now more kings. Yehoash, or Jehoash, Yehoash was seven years old when he became king. A young lad. A young lad. Yehoash became king. In the seventh year of Yehu. And he reigned in Jerusalem for 40 years. I guess from 7 to 47, if I do the math correctly. And his mother's name was Tzivya from Be'er Sheva. And Yehoyosh, uh-oh, was he kosher or not? He was good. 
He did what was proper in the eyes of the Lord all his days. And he did what Yehoyada, the priest, instructed him. However, the high places, the high places means um, uh, illegal altars. You know, there's only meant to be in Jewish law and Torah law, one altar with, uh, upon which to bring sacrifices, and that was in the Holy Temple. First in the Mishkan, and then in the, Holy Te- the permanent Holy Temple, whatever. But only one place to bring offerings. Not in your backyard, not in the neighborhood, not in uh, the town square, not somewhere in the forest, only in the temple, the, high, the, the Holy Temple. So when the people kind of revolted against idolatry, the problem is they didn't really get rid of it. They knocked down ceremoniously, they knocked down, as we said before, the temple of the Baal, and they smashed altars, and they slew this Matan priesthood, okay? But the, the scripture tells us the high places were not removed, and the people were still slaughtering sacrifices and burning incense on the high places. They were still doing private issue sacrifices. They were still doing the altar, the home game, which is maybe good for Wheel of Fortune and Jeopardy and you know, you, oh, hey, I love that show. Let me, let, can we play that game at home? Great. That's good for certain things, but not good for offerings. Certainly not what God wants. Um, in Hebrew, it's called bamot. Bamot. Bamot are high places, but they are really altars, platforms, upon which illegal offerings were brought, essentially. You know, so even if it's for God, God says, I don't want you to bring your own offerings on your own places. You got to go to the temple. You got to go to Jerusalem. Okay. And Yehoyah said to the priests, All money of the hallowed things which is brought to the house of the Lord, the money of anyone who passes the numbering, each one the money of the value of the people whose value he vows to donate, all money with uh, all money which comes upon a man's heart to bring to the house of the Lord. All that money the priests shall take for themselves, each one from his acquaintance. They shall strengthen the damage of the house wherever damage is found. In other words, he was saying basically we need to do a fundraiser. Everyone should give. And that's going to repair the damage to the temple. I guess the temple had been uh, compromised over the years with uh, idolatry, etc. And so this was for the repairs. And it was that in the 23rd year of King Yehoyosh, the priest did not strengthen the damages of the house. Uh-oh. So he told them to do it, raise money, and do some repairs. We need some paint. We need some uh, sheetrock. Kidding. Right, they need some repairs, and they didn't do it. The priest did not strengthen the damages. Strengthen the damages mean fix the damage. They didn't fix the damages. They didn't. Fi- they didn't do the repairs. So the and King Yahya summoned Yahya the priest, and the priest said, and and so Yahya the priest and the priest, and he said to them, "Why are you not repairing the damage of the house? Why aren't you doing the repairs? Now take no money from your acquaintances, but give it to the damage of the house. Don't pocket the money. Put it into the to the to the repairs." Infrastructure, as they say nowadays. And the priests agreed not to take money from the people and not to repair the damage of the house. They said, okay, if that's the case, then that we're not doing the repairs, nor are we taking the money. And Yehoiada the priest took one chest and bored a hole in its door. And he placed it near the altar on the right where a person enters the house of the Lord. And the priest, the guards of the threshold, would put all the money that was brought into the house of the Lord into there. created like a box, like a, 
like a tzedakah box, donation box. And all the money that was brought to the temple was put into that box. It was placed right next to the altar. And it was when they saw that there was much money in the chest that the king's scribe and the high priest went up and packed and counted the money which was brought into the house of the Lord. And they would give the counted money to the hands of the foreman of the work who were appointed in the hands of the Lord, in the house of the Lord. And they spent it for the carpenters and for the builders who work in the house of the Lord. Interesting. So they didn't like, they didn't fundraise for it. They didn't like do an ask. But whoever brought money, I guess, voluntarily and put it into that box, that's what they used for the repairs. Okay? And they used the money for the carpenters, the builders, and for the masons, and for the stonecutters, and to buy wood and quarried stones to repair the damage of the house of the Lord, and for everything which would be spent for the house to strengthen it. However, there would not be made for the house of the Lord silver pitchers, musical instruments, basins, trumpets, or any golden or silver utensils from the money brought into the house of the Lord. In other words, not, no purchasing of these types of items. It was only strictly the money that was brought into the, to the, to the temple itself. That money was exclusively used for the repairs. But they would give it, that money, to the foreman over the work, and they would repair therewith the house of the Lord. And they would not reckon with the men into whose hand they would give the money to give the foreman over the work, for they did the work honestly. That not reckon means they didn't, um, they didn't feel the need to audit, to do a deep dive audit, forensic audit into how the money was spent because the foremen who were given the money, they, they did it honestly. They only charged or only took the money that they needed for the actual repairs. And they did it like that. The money for the guilt offerings and the money for sin offerings would not be brought into the house of the Lord, they would go to the priests. Guilt offerings and sin offerings would be like communal stuff. Communal stuff. That was brought straight to the priests, and that's, that was spent on the sacrifices. So why this Haftor, why this week? Because the bulk of it talks about donations, communal funds, whether to build or to rebuild the infrastructure of the temple, or to pay for the sacrifices. And that's what the shekel was. That, sorry, that's what the, the machetz shekel, the half a shekel contribution this time of year was. And that's what this Shabbos is called. Shabbat Shkalim. The Shabbat of the shekels. Of the donations. When in temple times, they would put out the call and say, everyone show up with a half a, half a shekel coin. And we're going to use it for all these things. So this is one example of where they did a campaign, or they tried to do a campaign for temple use. Whatever, and the nuances there. And of course, we would have to do a much deeper dive into the story and to understand the historical context. And, and I, don't, I don't have that info right now at the tip of my fingers. But nonetheless, what we see here from the Haftorah is a movement, an effort to raise funds, collect funds for the temple and its sacrifices. And that's what this Shabbat, Shkalim, that's the energy of the Shabbat. All right, with this, exactly on time. We can close it out. Any questions or comments, final words? Feel free to jump in. Okay. All right. In that case, I'll conclude with wishes for a good Shabbos. Shabbat Shalom. It should be a Shabbos, a Shabbat of, um, the word I'm looking for is not synergy, but it should be a Shabbat of fusion in which we fuse the mundane and the spiritual, in which we enjoy good food for the sake of Shabbat, 
in which we recognize that in the physical experiences, there is a higher purpose. And with the proper mindfulness, they can be transformed into holy experiences of the highest order. And should also be a Shabbat of, on some level, generosity. Generosity and giving and support, etc. Recognizing that, that it takes a village, it takes a community to build a community. And each of us has what we can, what we can contribute. Whether it's financially, whether it's on a volunteer basis, time, money, effort, ingenuity, creativity, across the board. We're all part of this. And that was the beautiful message of the half-shekel donation. It's that the temple doesn't run on its own. There's no such thing as the temple. right? The temple runs with the community. The temple runs with the community's help. All right, my friends, I want to wish you all a good Shabbos. Shabbat of blessings and peace and happiness and a Shabbat of holiness and realizing the divine truth in everything. All right, take care. We'll see you either on Shabbos or after Shabbos. Sunday we have Kabbalah coffee as usual. And then there is the Jewish Life Festival in the afternoon here in Atlanta at the aquarium, followed by Jewish Book Club in the evening, 8 p.m., in person and on Zoom as well. Okay, we'll see you all. Take care. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you. Pleasure, pleasure. See you guys.